From NBC5 and the Dallas Morning News, this is the Lone Star Politics Podcast. I'm Chris Blake. Election day was Saturday in North Texas, and while some races were decided, there are a lot of big races that aren't over yet. The elections for Texas's 6th Congressional District, 6 of the 14 Dallas City Council seats, and elections for mayor in Fort Worth and Arlington are all going to a runoff. Still, Julie Fine and Gromer Jeffers look at what we do know and what it means for the runoffs this summer. Plus, the future of permitless carry in Texas is still up in the air in the Senate, and we now know how the state's growth will impact its sway in Washington. To discuss all that this week, Julian Gromer will talk to TCU political science professor James Riddlesberger, State Senator Bob Hall, a Republican from Rockwall, and Dallas Morning News Washington Bureau Chief Todd Gilman. But first, Julian Gromer, start with an election recap. Many of the big races are headed to a runoff. This includes the special election to replace late District 6 Representative Ron Wright. 23 candidates were vying to fill the seat in the House of Representatives that stretches from Tarrant County to Navarro and Ellis. Governor Abbott will set the date for a runoff between Wright's wife, Susan Wright, who received 19% of the vote. She will go up against Representative Jake Elzey, who received 14%. He edged out Democrat Janice Sanchez, who finished with 13%. Dallas City Council member Adam Bazaldua is among three incumbents who will have to continue fighting for their seats. Dallas voters will head back to the polls on June 5th to decide six races, including Bazaldua from District 7, Carolyn King-Arnold from District 4, and David Blewett from District 14. Also headed to a runoff, open council seats in Districts 2, 11, and 13. Now, Gromer, your take on those elections and the mayor's endorsement of some candidates. Yeah, Julie, that was the, the, the big thing to watch in the Dallas council races. How would the mayor's endorsements play? And they didn't play well. In District 5, the incumbent won, uh, beating an, a candidate endorsed uh, by the mayor. And, of course, you know, Basil Dua uh, made the runoff in District 7. The candidate backed by the mayor did not, uh, 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 Mr. Parrish. So you have a situation where the mayor went out on a limb. He did something uh, like some mayors don't do, which is endorsing council races, and it, and it bit him. It hurt. And now he has to figure out, how do I build a coalition? How do I deal with council members, some who are upset that I endorsed in these races? And, and, and others that are just going to give me a hard time because of that. So he's going to have to figure it out, Julie, because he needs to get his agenda through. And in Fort Worth, there will be a new mayor after Betsy Price decided not to seek another term. The runoff will be between Deborah Peoples, who earned 35 percent of the vote, versus Maddie Parker, who finished with 32 percent. Now let's bring in political science professor James Riddlesberger from TCU. Thanks so much for being with us. I'm delighted to be here. We appreciate it, especially at this early hour. Let's start with that Fort Worth mayor's race. I mean, your take on what happened and what happens moving forward. Well, it, it unfolded like the conventional wisdom suggested that it would. Uh, I mean, Deborah Peoples, of course, uh, ran against Mayor Price two years ago and got 42 percent of the vote. Uh, and Maddie Parker was kind of the designated uh, insider candidate here. And though there were two current council members also on the ballot, and Steve Panate making a kind of a run from the outside. Um, uh, the uh, two leading candidates who we kind of projected to be the leading candidates from the beginning uh, remained on top uh, when the votes were finally counted. Professor, Deborah Peoples is a longtime Democratic Party leader. Do you expect partisan politics and that part of it 
to, to emerge in a nonpartisan race, does that give her an advantage or disadvantage? Well, uh, I mean, as you know, it's difficult to translate a nonpartisan election into partisanship because then the party names are not on the ballot. And so for, for many voters, uh, they really don't know party affiliation. Now, Deborah Peoples, of course, is well known among Democratic voters in, in uh, Tarrant County and in Fort Worth. Uh, but Maddie Parker, who is nominally a Republican, uh, has never run for office before and has not run for this uh, office as a Republican. She's tried to uh, take the old traditional nonpartisan approach. So um, uh, it won't be as explicitly partisan as I think a lot of close observers would like for it to be. Uh, but, uh, but obviously that is an increasing element in local politics. Let's turn now to District 6. You are now seeing two Republicans making the runoff. Democrats shut out there. Your opinion on why that happened? Well, it's a turnout issue. All of these elections are turnout, turnout issues. Uh, and uh, I mean, I certainly am not surprised that Susan Wright uh, ended up leading the pack uh, in, that, uh, in that race. Uh, but I think that the, the, the difference between uh, Jake Elsey uh, and uh, uh, Jenna Sanchez was, you know, 400 votes or something of that sort. Uh, and that is just a matter of people turning out. Remember, uh, there were about 350,000 people that voted in this District 6 election in the fall of 2020. About 75,000 people voted yesterday. So, uh, you know, uh, these special elections are always very, very difficult to project. And it. They, and, and the outcome depends upon who turns out their voters. How do you think that does play out? It really helps her in Ellis and Navarro County, where she was deemed to need to do some work, where LZ was probably uh, better known, particularly in, in, in Ellis County with the Trump endorsement. That gives her a road toward those Trump voters who will be critical, not just in turnout, but in giving her credibility with parts of the Republican base. So it will be huge. But Jake Elsey has Rick Perry, the former governor, Julie. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, they have actually campaigned together. Rick Perry, obviously a big name, especially in that district. I mean, how does he set himself apart? Well, he's still popular, and, and he, he, he does this. He goes to the Republicans, you know, the Club for Growth, the anti-tax group, even Ted Cruz. They were hidden, uh, slamming at uh, Elsey a while back. He goes to Republicans with questions and, say, and puts his arm around Elsie and says, hey, this is my guy. He's all right. He'll be good for the district. And coming from Rick Perry, that gives a credibility uh, that Elsie needs. However, when you talk about the former president, that could be a hurdle. That's the problem. What does Elsie say to, to voters who are listening to Donald Trump and doing what he says, what he wants them to do? A couple other mayoral races to touch on. The race to replace Arlington Mayor Jeff Williams will go to a runoff between Jim Ross and Michael Glaspie. In Plano, businessman John Munns was elected over city council member Lily Bow. In both cities, the outgoing mayors are out of office due to term limits. Again, the runoffs for these local races will be on June 5th. The date for the runoff in the District 6 special election has not yet been announced. A bill that would allow Texans to carry handguns without a permit cleared a state Senate committee in a 5-2 party line vote on Thursday. House Bill 1927 would remove the requirement for someone to obtain a license or training before carrying a handgun in public. The bill passed the House in April, but Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick says he still doesn't have the votes to get it through the Senate. Governor Greg Abbott has said he would sign the bill if it reached his desk. State Senator Bob Hall is a Republican from Rockwall on the Senate committee focusing on that bill. 
Here he is with Julian Gromer. Joining us this morning, a member of the Senate Committee on Constitutional Issues, State Senator Bob Hall from Rockwall. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, thank you guys, uh, Julie and Gromer. Appreciate you having me on. Good to see you guys again. Good to see you. Well, your committee has moved the bill forward for permitless carry. Do you think there will be the votes on the full Senate floor to pass it? <laughs> if I had the answer to that question, I could answer a lot of other things. Uh, I think we're moving in that direction. Uh, as I listen to the opposition uh, to it, I hear an awful lot of like what we heard in the, in the hearing yesterday, a misunderstanding of what the bill does and what it doesn't do. I think a lot of people don't really realize how little this bill actually changes. Uh, and I'm talking about the bill the way, the way we heard it yesterday and then the uh, five or six amendments that may be put on it on the floor or at least will be considered. Uh, you, you don't have anybody that isn't current. I talk about to, between today and tomorrow, the way we are today and tomorrow if we were to pass the bill. There is nobody who would be able to carry a gun legally that's 21 years of age tomorrow that cannot carry a gun today. We don't expand the universe uh, beyond those who can currently possess a gun. Now, there are a few people who can possess a gun who cannot get a carry license such as people are delinquent on taxes, uh, delinquent on child, child support payments, uh, and things of that nature. But there would be nobody with a violent or criminal uh, history or background that would be, could legally carry a gun once this is passed. So, and there are no locations that ch are changed. If a gun-free zone is a gun-free zone today, it will be a gun-free zone tomorrow after this passes. Now, we do make a change. Uh, the idea is to keep bad people from doing bad things. So we do enhance the penalties for someone who uh, either lies in an application or uses a gun in a crime. The, the penalties will go up. But at the same time, we don't want to punish people for making honest mistakes. And so, so, so Senator, let, let me, let, I'm sorry to cut you off, but let me let me ask you this. Why do you think sure. the bill is necessary? Where is the problem that it would be solving? Uh, it's, it's the issue of individual's right uh, that, uh, that, that is considered the Second Amendment right that the Constitution enshrines as a, a God-given right to self-defense uh, without having to get permission from the government to do it. And in the short time we have left, what about the critics of this bill concerned there is no training required if that permit isn't required? And there are concerns in the law enforcement community that not all gun sales require those background checks like person-to-person -person sales. So what do you say to that? Uh, in the second one, uh, nothing changes with regards to current law on who can purchase a gun and how they can purchase it. This bill does not change that at all. Uh, the other issue on training, we will be providing changes to DPS to provide for an online uh, training course for those people who uh, feel that they need to have some training and recognizing that uh, there's some personal responsibility that goes with doing everything we do and expect that uh, people will exercise their personal responsibility to not uh, do to carry or do something with a firearm that they are not capable of doing. Senator Bob Hall, thanks for joining us. We appreciate your time.
Thank you for having me. Good to see you guys. Texas has 4 million more residents than it did in 2010, according to numbers released last week by the U.S. Census Bureau. More than 29 million people live in the state, second only to 40 million in California. The jump in population means Texas will get two more congressional seats and bring the state's number of electoral votes to 40. Republicans hold the state House, Senate, and Governor's office, which means they will be in charge of redistricting. Todd Gilman is the Dallas Morning News Washington Bureau Chief. He joins Julian Gromer to talk about redistricting and President Joe Biden's address to a joint session of Congress last week. Todd, thanks for being with us. It is always a pleasure. The president laid out a very bold agenda. Did he make the case he needed to to get it done, and can he get support for it? Well, there were two audiences. There was the audience of Congress, or those uh, who were lucky enough uh, to attend, and the Republicans were not impressed. You know, we, we saw the cutaway shots of Ted Cruz, not impressed. Uh, the other audience, the really important audience, is the audience back home, the viewers, the voters, uh, who will put the pressure on senators like Cruz and Cornyn, who will entirely resist any pressure from Democrats in Texas. But really, people like Senator Joe Manchin, who's kind of on the fence, Democrat, swing voter in the Senate, really controls the agenda because it's a 50-50 Senate. So did Biden make the case? He made a very strong case for some really progressive agenda items. Uh, and he did it in as non-threatening a way as he could have probably done. And, you know, on one level, it was a boring speech. It was pedestrian. His delivery is, is pretty so-so for a president. And when you compare him to Trump and Obama and Clinton, uh, and even Bush, not so good. But if you're pushing a pretty dramatic, uh, you know, spending and tax overhaul tax hike plan, uh, being kind of pedestrian with your rhetoric is probably pretty helpful. Todd, um, let's switch gears here. Census information is out, and Texas is gaining two seats. It was originally thought the state would gain three. Any idea, like, uh, uh, can you pronosticate where these districts will be drawn? Well, you know, it's really interesting because if there had been three, I, I would have made a guess that we would have gotten a, a Hispanic majority district in the Dallas area, which the Dallas North Texas never had uh, a district where Hispanic voters had control. Uh, but with two, it suggests that there was a pretty big undercount of the state's uh, Latino Hispanic population, which suggests that when we get that granular data, the census tract level, very neighborhood specific data, uh, that we're not gonna see these concentrations of, of voters who would likely be Democrats that would have made it impossible for a Republican controlled legislature to draw those sorts of districts. You know, the, the Republicans hold the, the governorship and the state house and Senate. They control redistricting as they have done for the past two decennial census uh, redistrictings. And they have grabbed with both hands. You know, we have a, a, although we have one vacancy right now, basically we have 23 out of 36 congressional districts controlled by Republicans. Yet Republicans only got just barely over half of the votes in the November election. The proportion is, is way out of whack and it will continue to be that way. So where they'll be, you know, it would hard to, hard to imagine that they're not somewhere in the Dallas and Houston areas, but how exactly they're carved, 
um, you know, those clever map makers uh, in Austin are, are going to surprise us in a few ways, I suspect. When you look at the overall map, it seems that some of the states that gained seats are red. Several blue states lost them. So how does that affect 2020? Uh, 2022, the midterms Thank you. is very much a problem for Democrats who only hold the House by a swing of about five seats. Uh, you know, this progressive agenda that Biden is, is pushing is going to alienate a lot of voters. There will be a backlash as there almost always is in the first midterm election after a president is elected. And with those red controlled, Republican controlled states redrawing lines to their benefit, you know, that puts a thumb on the scale. They would win back those five seats and more. Uh, it would be very surprising if Republicans don't swing the House in, in the midterms. We, you know, we kind of just got into 2022 and how the maps changing will affect Congress. I mean, go into that a little bit further. Well, right now, apart from the vacancy uh, in Texas from the unfortunate uh, death of Ron Wright, uh, that this weekend's special election will start the process. There'll be a runoff. There are four vacancies that are Democrat seats around the country, uh, mostly people who are who are, uh, join the Biden administration. Uh, but if you let's assume those are all filled by one Republican and four Democrats, Democrats can only afford a swing of five seats in the 2022 midterms. That is a very narrow margin to keep Nancy Pelosi as speaker. And with Republicans controlling uh, states that control two thirds of House districts, uh, including Texas, where the governor is a Republican and the legislature is controlled entirely by Republicans, Republicans have the thumb on the scales. They can uh, draw the congressional districts for the next round of elections to their liking. and. That could buy them another 10, 20 seats in addition to the ordinary backlash that is very predictable in a midterm after a president is elected. It will be a very difficult slog for Democrats hoping to keep control of the House in 2022. And that will create a much different dynamic with, with President Biden, a Democrat in White House, but then he's facing divided government in Washington. And then, then we'll really see what kind of a deal maker he is. You know, Todd, it, it just shows you how important these end of decade, beginning of decade elections are, because they you, you just laid it out. They shape the politics of the next five, 10 years or beyond. But let me ask you this, given what you just said, and I know President Joe Biden is probably forecasting the same thing. There has to be a sense of urgency then he has in getting his agenda through before 2022. So what options do you know does he really have there? Well, it's a really interesting strategic uh, choice that he faces and question that you pose because there, the two basic schools of thought are play small ball, get things done that you know you can get done work across the aisle and find the common ground and hammer out deals that are gettable with the opposition. 
the other school of thought, which seems to be the one that Biden is is taking, and maybe he's been thinking about this for 50 years since he first started about uh, thinking about running for president, is go big quickly. He has seen, he saw his, his governing partner, Barack Obama, uh, lose some fights early. He's seen other presidents try to do modest things, go bipartisan early on, and they get bogged down. And, you know, in the Senate, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, is a master of, of setting up uh, landmines for, for Democratic presidents. And Biden has decided, for better or worse, strategically, that he's going big. He is advocating this once-in-a-generation infrastructure investment. Uh, he, he's talking about a tremendous tax overhaul that will include tax hikes on people making over $400,000 and on corporations and on investors in particular by getting rid of uh, or raising the, the tax rate on capital gains. Uh, not really dramatic and radical in the historical sense. It's just going back to levels that we saw under George W. Bush. But you know, Republicans have been winning that fight for decades that any sort of tax hike is bad, bad, bad. And they have left the impression that any sort of tax hike hits you, whoever you are, whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're aspiring um, or already a billionaire. And that's just not the case. What Democrats right now are trying to do is restore a, a, a balance that used to exist in the tax code to make it more progressive, where the wealthier pay more, where corporations pay more than they're paying now. But uh, that is a difficult political argument to win, and Biden is trying to win it early because, as you say, he knows that after the midterm elections, he's almost certainly not going to be able to win that. So he's also hoping with the infrastructure investment to have uh, benefits that people will see when it's time to vote in the midterms, to maximize his chances and the Democrats' chances in the midterms. Maybe there'll be new roads. Maybe there'll be uh, fewer bridges that collapse. Maybe your health insurance will be less costly or you'll be able to afford elder care for your aging parent. If he can get those wins now, even if they're ugly wins, even if they're partisan wins, he feels that uh, he has gotten something done and that may actually have benefits electorally in the midterms. You know, I, I noticed the other night when he was giving his speech that he basically said about the infrastructure plan, Republicans, I appreciate your input. Thank you for bringing me a plan. However, the whole world is watching and basically we can't do nothing. So was that basically his way of saying, Let's try to come together, but if not, I'm going with reconciliation. It is, it is in fact, his message is, I'm not going to be a patsy. I'm not going to sit around forever while you run out the clock, Mitch McConnell, or Kevin McCarthy and Republicans in the House. I'm not going to let you run out the clock on me. I will work with you to the extent that you'll work with me, but I'm not going to get chumped, as so many presidents have been in the past by the opposition party that that projected the idea of we want to work with you, we want to be bipartisan and find common ground. But what they were really doing was trying to stymie uh, any sort of achievement that the president could bring into the next election. So Biden genuinely, I'm sure, does want to work across the aisle, but he has made a decision that that, is, that offer is not indefinite.
Todd, we miss yeah. you. We love having you on. You know, for Todd, he's witnessed too much to say he's witnessed it all, but it just keeps getting interesting. <laughs> Well, he's witnessed a lot. <laughs> yeah, he's witnessed. Yeah. I will I will sometimes call Todd and say, can you break this down for me? Like, help me out here. But it just keeps getting... Yeah, but you're the one who knows how to ask the good questions to those newsmakers. So <laughs> my, my hat would be off to you if I were wearing one. But oh, seriously, Todd, it just Our keeps, hat's off to you. It just keeps getting interesting. I mean, you, you look at when you first uh, went down there to Washington and, and, and then when you became bureau chief. I mean, just, just think of all the major news events, man. It just... It, it is, but you know, it's so much more boring and normal now that we're in the Biden era ah. and era. Uh, and journalistically, it's good and bad. You know, there was there were three stories to write every two hours with the Trump administration. The Biden administration is more predictable. Uh, they're not at each other's throats yet, or maybe ever in this administration. So there's less leaking. Um, there's less frantic tweeting from five in the morning until one in the morning. Um, it makes it a, a little harder to, to get readers and, and, and voters maybe excited. Um, but we're still dealing with tremendous fallout from January 6th and the riot. And, uh, and Trump is still active out there. He's active in the 6th Congressional District. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot to keep an eye on. All right. All right, Todd, thanks for being with us. We can't wait till you come here. We get there. We look forward to seeing you in person. It's great to be with you guys. Thanks to James Riddlesberger, State Senator Bob Hall, and Todd Gilman for joining us this week. For more on elections and everything else you need to know about Texas politics, visit NBCDFW.com slash Lone Star Politics. We'll talk to you next week.